Good morning, church family. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? Good. We, Gene and I want to say thank you to the church for allowing us to have last weekend off to go to La Jolla. Uh, it rained the whole weekend. Should have gone the first weekend we originally was chosen to do so, but uh, it was still nice for us to be able to go there and to get away for a little bit. We uh, attended there uh, a seminar called A Weekend to Remember for, for Marriages. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, I would recommend every married couple, no matter how long you've been married, to attend. Gene and I, we laughed, we cried, we uh, made friends, we restated uh, our marriage vows, we had a wonderful time. We saw miracles take place. Over 600 people attended that seminar. And there were five others going in Southern California at the same time. So if they had 600 at each one of those, you could see what was happening. Some marriages were on the brink of divorce, thinking that this is the last-ditch effort that they're going to be able to do, and then they're going to go either uh, to, to the attorneys um, one couple, they explained, actually had the divorce papers with them. All they had to do was sign it and their marriage was over. At the end of the seminar, they tore their divorce papers up. It was very spiritual. Um, well done. Wonderful speakers that were very vulnerable about their own marriages. But the grace of God was there. So thank you. And if anyone is curious about them, let us know and we can let you know about it and, and help you in getting signed up and, and getting a cheaper rate as well too. Well, I feel the need to have prayer. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Lord, we just pray that your spirit will speak through me as we take a look at this topic called the perfect churches. If we look around, we don't see any church that's perfect. But we do have a Savior that is perfect. We're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a look at Genesis 1, verse 1, and in verse 31, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 31 says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Wow. I'm glad that I believe in creation and a God that is a creator. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God knew something was going to happen before it happened. As we read in the verse, as Susan read, our God knows everything, even in the future. It's a wonder he ever created the earth at all. Do you know that? Knowing that sin was going to come into the world, 
And even though he gave Adam and Eve full instructions of what they could do and what they couldn't do and what would happen if they followed the wrong direction, it's still a wonder that he created the earth, the plants, the animals, and mankind. Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10 says this, Remember the former things, we read this, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So even though he knows ahead of time what's going to happen, his will is still going to be done. We call this omniscient. God knows what's going to happen before it happens. He knew sin would enter into this newly created world that he saw and said was very good. So why did he create it? The best answer is found in 1 John 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He created this world because he loved the man and the woman and all human beings that would be created. Even though he knew what the horrible results of sin would be, and how mankind, when they'd fall into this trap of sin, would become very selfish, God in all of his love made a decision way before he ever created the world. The Father and his Son, Jesus, met together and made a solemn oath, a covenant between them, promising that when man fell, Jesus the Son would be the ransom for lost mankind. Jesus was willing to meet the demands of God's justice and give his life so that we might live. It has always been in the mind of God to save sinners by giving his son to die, his only son. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sin. I like what Ellen White says in the book, The Faith I Live By, on page 76. The salvation of the human race has ever been the object of the counsels of heaven. The covenant of mercy was made before the foundations of the world, before the creation of the world. It has existed from all eternity and is called the everlasting covenant. So surely as there never was a time when God was not, so surely there never was a moment when it was not the delight of the eternal mind to manifest his grace to humanity. Never question. Jesus never questioned about coming to this earth and dying so that we might have life. For you and I, this wouldn't be an easy decision. But Jesus kept to his guns. He was determined to save lost mankind no matter the cost. And after sin entered, that decision then was confirmed in heaven. In the book, Early Writings, page 126 and 127. He then made known to the angelic choir, this is after sin entered in here on this earth, that a way of escape had been made for lost man. 
that he had been pleading with his father and had obtained permission to give his own life as a ransom for the race to bear their sins and take the sentence of death upon himself, thus opening a way whereby they might, through the merits of his blood, find pardon for past transgressions and by obedience be brought back to the garden from which they were driven. Then they could again have access to the glorious immortal fruit of the tree of life to which they had now forfeited all right. I saw that it was impossible for God to change his law in order to save the lost, perishing man. Therefore, he suffered his darling son to die for man's transgressions. There's a lot spoken in those words. God made known to Adam and Eve that their their guilt of disobedience would be taken care of by this loving God. Look what God said when he spoke directly to the serpent, which was the devil, back in the Garden of Eden. God said in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity, the word enmity means war, I will put war between you, that's the devil, and the woman. What is a woman in Bible prophecy? Church. I'm going to put enmity, a war between you and the church, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The woman is a church. You know what the seed represents? Offspring, child. The offspring or child of the church will bruise the head of Satan with a deadly wound. That same message of hope was carried from one generation to the next. It was even spoken about in the very last book of the Bible, a book written for for us living just before the second coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, what's a woman? Church, church clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out and labored in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. A third of the stars are angels. A third of the angels of heaven. And threw them to the earth. And the dragon, Satan, stood before the woman, the church, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and His throne. What child was born to the church that was caught up and went to God in heaven and to His throne? It was Christ. The child that Satan was ready to devour was Jesus just as soon as He was born. A very small, vulnerable little infant. And and Satan says, I'm ready. I'm going to destroy him. You would think 
that the message of hope that came to the first ones in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned, that it would cause all God's people, those who believe in Him, to be determined to carry out the will of God in their lives. Don't you think? But history tells us something different. After Adam and Eve sinned, they had children. No doubt, this husband and wife team revealed to their children the story of creation. And then revealed to them Satan and what, how he tricked them. And what happened when, when they were tricked. And then the promise that came directly from God, the promise of a Messiah that would come and rescue mankind from their sins. No doubt they shared that with each child as it was born. You would think that those children would say, Praise God! But in Genesis 4, verses 3 through 7, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering. But he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So what is God saying? God is revealing to him that you shouldn't be angry. Why was, why was Cain angry? Because God accepted his brother's offering of sacrifice, but didn't accept his. Why didn't God accept Cain's offering? Because God had instructed what the offering was to be. It was to be a sacrificial animal, not grain. But Cain wanted to do it his way because he was a grain farmer. He was a wheat farmer. He wanted to have it his way, not God's way. And God came to him and says, look, if you do it right, you'll be accepted by me. But if you don't, you won't be accepted. Well, Cain wasn't against giving an offering to God. He just wanted to give his offering of grain instead of the animal sacrifice. Did you notice that God spoke to Cain and told him the consequences? To me, that's a divine miracle. Not everyone has God speaking to them. Did you know that? Genesis 4, verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Even though Cain desired to give an offering to God, he was not against God. He was not against offering up an offering. He wanted to be spiritual, but he wanted to do it in his own way. And God spoke to him and told him the consequences of doing things your own way and what would happen if you do it your way and not God's way. 
And what happened? The consequence was he killed his brother. Think of it. A man that came from a God-fearing family who had passed down the information to him murdered his brother. Who'd have thought that would have ever happen? Years passed, great men shared by word of mouth, telling one story after another of the promise of a coming Messiah to a known to this world. And men were raised up sharing this, like men like Methuselah and Enoch. Spell Methuselah, Gary. Methuselah and Enoch. But did the world listen with great hope and anticipation? Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Even though the message of hope was passed down by great men who was not afraid to speak, wickedness abounded to those who heard the messages given by God's messengers. Thank God Noah paid attention. Noah, God spoke to Noah, told him to build an ark, but also for 120 years Noah preached about a coming flood and that God had made a provision that all would be saved and delivered if they would only get into the ark. But no one paid attention. It wasn't that they were against God. They still wanted to worship a God, but they just wanted to do it in their own way. And then when God said that something's going to happen, they didn't believe that it would happen. Genesis 7 verse 23 so he, God, destroyed all living things which were on the face of the, of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Stubbornness to listen to God's warnings and unwillingness to prepare for the coming events even when God explained to them what was going to happen and how they could be saved, it still killed mankind because they wanted to do things their way. Noah and his family began to have children. They told the marvelous stories of the flood, the miraculous event of, of the animals coming into the ark, this big door closing all by itself, how they were spared, their lives were spared, how all mankind was destroyed. You would think with that story that it would make a difference in the lives of their children as they grew up, saying, praise God, I want to worship Him. But in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 3, it says, now the whole earth had one language. I'm going to need that drink of water. Richard, did you have bring it? He's got it. Praise God. And he's even walking up here without his cane. Thank you. He comes prepared. I should have had another weekend off. I only work one day a week, you know that. 
Genesis 11, verses 1 through 3. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Here are the generations that came up after Noah. They heard the story of the flood. They heard of the miraculous delivery. But they wanted to make a name for themselves. Selfish desires. That's what sin is. They wanted to do something great in the eyes of mankind. I want to be recognized. They wanted a tower to reach the heavens way up there. You know why? In case if God decides to bring another flood, they could get up there and be saved. They could save themselves. They didn't take into the consideration, they didn't believe God's promise that He would never again destroy the entire earth with a flood. They wanted to do things their own way, so they built their tower. Lacking faith in God, they began to build the first skyscraper. That was not God's will. And we know that in the midst of their building, they had all spoken the same language, but then all of a sudden they started speaking different languages. They couldn't understand each other, and if you can't understand each other, you can't do your will. And so the tower was not built. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Even though they're not against God, even though they hear the stories and they know the truth, they want to do it their way. I don't want to hear what God has to say. Well, I'll still worship God. But I'm going to do it in my own way. Time passes. God's people are held as slaves in Egypt. They heard the message of God from the lips of Moses. They saw the ten plagues. They walked through the parting of the Red Sea. They followed God as He led them by a pillar of of clouds by day and the fire by night. They were fed manna when there was nothing else to eat. They were given water to drink that flowed out of a solid rock. They were eyewitnesses who saw the reality of God in His throne. Take a look at Exodus 24, verse 9 through 12. Moses went up and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they all saw the God of Israel. And they were under God's feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire, beautiful blue stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God... And they ate and drank. Can you imagine that? Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I'll give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. 
They heard God saying, come up, Moses, so I can give you something to teach. They saw God. They saw His throne. Can you imagine what these elders said when they went back and told the people what they had seen and what they had experienced? Are you, I'm sure they said, praise God, we saw something that no one else in the world has ever seen. You would have thought that would have increased their faith as Moses went up on the mountain, right? Exodus 32, 1-8. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Well, break off your golden earrings which are on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and molded a mold, made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God. O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made themselves a molded calf and worship it and sacrifice to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? They're not against worshiping a god. They just want to worship Him their way. Not the way God instructed. Even though they saw the throne of God, even though they ate and drank with God, they wanted to do it their ways. Oh, how we forget. They went back to worshiping like the Egyptians, sacrificing to pagan gods, worshiping an idol, having worshipped their own way and not the way God had asked them to worship. Let's jump in time now. Let's jump in time to the days of Jesus. He started a ministry of healing, baptizing, preaching, preaching the kingdom of God. He chose men to be His disciples in order to learn and then to carry on the message of hope to a lost world. This is what they've been looking for all these generations was this Messiah. They saw great miracles being performed by Him. The blind could see. The lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised from their graves. Then came the Passover when all were to remember the deliverance from the hands of the Egyptians. The miracles of the past of how God has been leaving them. And to think... Now they're sitting in this upper room with the promised Messiah. God is delivering us. Jesus met them in the upper room, all wanting to do the will of their teacher, even admitting out loud 
that Jesus was the long sought after Messiah. John 13, verse 21 and 26 and 27. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. There's that omniscient God. He knew someone was going to betray him. It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Thinking that he was doing the right thing, Judas began doing the dirty work of the devil. He thought he was helping God. In reality, he was helping Satan himself. But not only Judas. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, look what happened to the happy band of followers that was with him that said he was the Messiah. Mark 14, verse 50. Then they, that's the rest of the disciples, all forsook him and fled. Can you imagine that? The very ones who vowed to follow and do whatever Jesus asked ran like scared jackrabbits. But it gets worse. Peter, the one who was the most vocal among the disciples, the one who vowed he would die for Jesus, verbally denounced even knowing him. Matthew 26, 69, 70, 72 through 75. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're saying. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood up came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Three times Peter denied that he knew Jesus. Is it possible? Let me be very, very vulnerable. Is it possible that we could do the same? But I'm a member of the Beaumont Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have been a third and fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. It will never happen to me. The will of God is to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Could we, out of fear, out of ignorance, or even out of willful neglect and selfishness, refuse to do the will of God? I knew I should have worn my steel-toed shoes this morning. It 
can't happen that way. It's different. We're living in the last days. We have the truth. Revelation 3, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says to the last day church, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Some people in this church don't want me to preach this. Jesus says, who knows the future, that he's looking at the last day church. He's saying, there's some of you that I am going to cast out of the church and you are thinking you're doing the will of God. Why? Because you say, spiritually, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserably poor, blind and naked. You don't know your spiritual condition. You think you've got it together. God's last day church will not feel the need of spiritual enlightenment because we've got it. That's exactly what the devil wants in God's people. Jesus pleads with his last day church. Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what's the will of God? Open the door of my heart. I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me to him who overcomes. I will grant to sit with me on my throne. We've got to overcome something. And I also overcame, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Before Jesus' second coming, it's important that His people have Jesus in their lives to direct His will to be done, not ours. So what is His will? Revelation 14, verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Oh no, let's cast the commandments of God out of the church. We don't need to emphasize that. It just makes enemies. Revelation 12, verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. There's those commandments again. Get him out of the road. It's a stumbling block. And have the testimony of Jesus? What in the world is that? Revelation 19, verse 10, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? Oh, get the spirit of prophecy out of the church. We don't need that anymore. Keep the commandments of God, not the commandments of men. Have the faith of Jesus, not relying on your own personal faith. And those who believe in the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, uplift the spirit of prophecy. When God sends a prophet, we are to accept that testimony as coming directly from heaven. Does God know something that we don't know? Is He trying to tell us something? Has He been trying to tell the church all down since Adam and Eve has been here, you've got to do my will, not yours? 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Satan's not seeking just anyone to devour. He's seeking out God's people. That's you and me. What he wants to do is to destroy our relationship with Jesus, but still make us think that we're worshiping Jesus. He wants you to think that you are serving God, but in reality you are like Judas serving Satan. He doesn't mind an emphasis on command the commandments of God. He just wants you to do it in your own way. Your own interpretation. He wants you to rely on your faith not to believe in God's prophetic message. That will never happen to me. I will serve God no matter what Satan does. Well, that's what Peter thought. And look how he denied Jesus three times. Look how the disciples abandoned Jesus when things were tough. Look how Judas betrayed Jesus thinking he was doing the will of God. Remember the words of Jesus about the last day church who doesn't think that there is anything that they need He says, you are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I want to show you something. Hope you're not ready to go home yet. I want to show you something that God foretold would happen even before Jesus came as a little baby. Clear back in the Old Testament, but it pertains to our day today. Because He knows what will happen before it ever happens? First of all, we have to go to Isaiah 4, verses 2 and 3. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Somehow, somewhere along the way, God is saying that there will be His people who's going to escape something. Something's going to happen. And the context of Isaiah, by the way, Isaiah chapter 4, has something to do with judgment where God is going to judge Jerusalem, and when He does, some will escape that judgment. They will be pardoned. But if some escape, it means that there will be some who will not escape. So what terrible thing is happening that will take place? You've got to look at Isaiah 4, verse 1. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. That really sounds good. The context, like I said, is has to do with the judgment of God's people, but let's break this down into prophetic language for our day. What does the symbolic number seven represent in the Bible? Perfection. Okay, so we've got perfection. Again, what does a woman in Bible prophecy represent? The church. This is plural. It says women. What does it mean? 
more than one church. So we have churches, all right? What one man does God's church want to hold on to? Christ, okay? So the one man represents Christ. Let's see what it says about food. Food represents what it represents in the Bible. John chapter 4, verses 31 to 34. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, that's Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Food represents the will of God. Isaiah 61, we've got to see what happens next. Isaiah 61. About garments, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The apparel represents the robe of Christ's righteousness. With all these symbols now in mind, let me read to you now Isaiah 41. In the last days, remember it talks about judgment, in the last days, God's perfect churches shall hold on to Jesus, saying, we want to do our own will and wear our own robe of righteousness and still want to be called or identified as a Christian. They're not against worshiping God. We just want to do it our way. I'm going to interpret what that way is. Not what God says. His prophets say one way, chuck them out, man. Can't speak the prophet's words in the church. Got to do the will of God? Chuck that out. It's not what His will is. It's what the will of the church is. It's what we interpret it to be. Righteousness? I've got the robe of my righteousness on. Not the robe of Christ's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we're living and seeing Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled in our churches today from many of our pulpits. The commandments of God are being set aside or reinterpreted. The faith of Jesus is actually cheap grace being taught from the pulpits and one should rely on your own faith, not the faith of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy, the writings of Ellen White is being ignored, and our churches cannot be brought up. You don't even talk about the judgment. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. We're not expected to do our will. We are expected to do the will of God. And what is His will? 
Review and Herald, May the 6th, 1875. What is the will of the Father? That we keep his commandments. John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Keeping the commandments, which is God's will, is is can only be done when I have the Spirit of Christ in me. The Spirit of truth also comes from the words of the prophets chosen by God to come to this earth to share a message on how to be ready on the soon second coming of Jesus. We're not to reject the words of the prophets, but we are to uphold the words as God's truth. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's talking to his people. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You keep killing off the prophets when they come. You want, you want a message from heaven, I'll bring you a message from heaven, but it's not what you want to hear. But when it comes, then you get angry at the prophets and you don't want them to speak anymore and there's no way you're going to have those words spoken in the church. So get rid of them. They make me feel guilty. Good. We are guilty. We're sinners. We need help. And we've got the Holy Spirit that's promised from way back before the world was ever created to be able to come into our lives and give us the help that we need. Amen. Don't rely on feelings. Your feelings are going to say to you, I have needed nothing. I'm a part of the church, man. I've been in church all my life. I know exactly what the preacher is going to preach before he preaches it, so I don't even have to go. Jesus is already in my heart because he makes me feel good. You know what the devil can do? He can make you feel good. Paul says we have to die to ourselves how often? Daily. And we're to invite Jesus into our lives? Daily. If we refuse... We will be devoured by the devil thinking and feeling that we're safe in the arms of Jesus. You know what? It's time for God's church to wake up because today the Savior is waiting to enter our hearts. Why don't we just let him come in?